Parse was a back-end-as-a-service company built in 2011 before being acquired by Facebook in 2013. Building a back-end-as-a-service for developers requires walking a thin line between giving engineers lots of control and preventing those engineers from shooting themselves in the foot. While she was at Parse, charity majors learned about the operational burdens of managing a service with really high uptime requirements and deeply technical edge cases that could take down a user's entire system. Charity took the lessons in systems engineering that she learned at Parse and co-founded Honeycomb.io, a service for observability and monitoring. Honeycomb is described as a tool for your systems like an IDE is to your code, and we get into that and what it means in this episode. Parse was eventually shut down because the service did not have a place in the strategic plans of Facebook. Charity and I also discussed the lessons that she learned from how the Parse acquisition panned out. This was a useful conversation for anyone who is considering selling their company or acquiring a startup because this was a case in which the acquisition didn't exactly work out in the best way that it could have. It was nonetheless a super interesting episode filled with lots of insights. So for that, I'm grateful. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode with Charity Majors. Charity Majors is a co-founder of Honeycomb.io. Charity, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's great to have you. So observability is this mm-hmm. word that seems to become have become a buzzword of the day. And in our industry, I think that the buzzwords are actually quite important because under the surface, whenever a new buzzword comes out, it usually means that something new is actually going on. We see this mm-hmm. with microservices. Microservices is a new word used to describe the same old service-oriented architecture, but the word describes newer ways that we are implementing services, or it mm-hmm. at least signals that there are some new ways. And I think the same is true for this observability term. It basically totally. means monitoring, but there are some newer implications. So what are the aspects of our modern systems that have changed the best strategies around monitoring, and why have we started using this word observability? I think that what we're seeing now is a giant trend towards software engineers needing to own and operate and be involved in the long term, like from architecture, you know, all the way out towards, you know, maintaining and even gas being on call for their own systems. You know, another buzzword term that has irritated me and many others for a long time is full stack. <laughs> you know, when an interview, when somebody tells me they're a full stack developer, I often will just roll my eyes and snap, okay, so talk to me about the chip you designed while you were, you know, also generating the UI and UX. You know, it's a meaningless phrase, but it also points to something that's real, right? Which is that increasingly, Either you go way deep on one thing or you have to go broad, right? Ops isn't going away. DBAs aren't going away. But we're increasingly on the other side of an API. And you can't just outsource all of that understanding and wisdom and intelligence to a human who's sitting next to you or a human that you can even get a hold of. And observability ties into this in a big way because from the beginning, it isn't the case that you can build a system, look at it, predict how it's going to fail, and then someone in ops will write monitoring checks for you. You know, Observability is instrumentation from day one. Every pull request, you know, you check the syntax, you check the, you know, all of these things that we're used to checking, you need to start checking each other for instrumentation. Mm. How observable is this? How much you're going to be able to predict what happens and how to model it mentally and how to fix it from, you know, the outputs that you're getting from it when certain state changes occur. So there are some fundamental technical trends that are leading this imperative about different observability changes, whether we're talking about containers or cloud architecture or wide use of third-party APIs that we don't know Mm -hmm. how they're instrumented. What are those salient changes and how are they driving the need for new tools? Mm -hmm. So there's a couple of things. I mean, one is things are getting better. You know, it's kind of like this is the story of capitalism, right? 
the person who's best at baking becomes better and better at baking, and pretty soon they don't do anything but baking, right? And we're seeing that happen. People who are good at databases do databases, and soon they can be better DBAs than you can, and you give them money for that. So that's, I think, reaching a certain convergence with this whole cloudification, you know, push everything to, everything to the cloud. Everything is a SaaS. There are so many people in the world who can do everything better than you or I can. Like, I went to my last data center to flip a hardware switch at like 3 a.m. at sometime in 2008 or 2009. I never plan on doing that again. You know, <laughs> I use an API. <laughs> like, there are still hardware engineers, engineers in the world, but fortunately, I'm not one of them, and I don't have to pretend to be a really crappy one. This is happening now at a much more intangible higher level services, you know, queues. People are just plugging together all these components to realize their vision, you know, and their vision is not, I'm going to master RabbitMQ and MongoDB and blah, blah, blah. Their vision is, you know, I have this app or I have this thing. I have this thing that I want to make real in the world. And all I need to understand about these components is how to glue them together at a high level and how to make it, you know, how to think rigorously down from the product. You know, we saw this yeah. so much at Parse. I feel like working at Parse, I was so fortunate to have kind of a front seat to a lot of things that were happening in the industry from the perspective of these, you know, either mom and pap shops who wanted to build an app for their own, you know, sake. And maybe they build a team afterwards. But, you know, they had to start from this perspective of, I understand what I need. I understand what my customer needs. I'm going to build that. Everything that is not core to that, I offload. And the other scenario is smaller teams or smaller, you know, experimental maybe visions within a large organization. You know, an enterprise is like, you know, trying an internal iOS app. Or maybe they're spinning up containers because they think this might be the future or it might be a better vision of the future that, you know, applies to them. But they're looking on this five to 10 year horizon. So they're trying it, you know, not everything that they try is going to become core to their model, but there's that baking in process. And I think that like both of those are becoming a really common trend. Hmm. Yeah. You worked at Parse, which was a backend as a service before it was acquired by Facebook. Describe what it was like to build a backend as a service in, what was it, 2009, 2010? Yes. It was like practically hard because think about any workload that you might need to support, you know, as a backend engineer and then multiply that by N or N is as many customers as you have sign up and you're trying to make that a very large number, right? So you basically have to treat them all as you cannot have to care about any one of them right, in order to make, to make all of them succeed. Now, that means you're going to be supporting write-heavy apps, read-heavy apps, social apps, geo apps, you know, any type of apps, apps that made 10x overnight because they got featured on the iPhone or the iTunes store, and then 10x again because they did marketing, and then 10x again, and then drop off the mat, you know? It has spoiled me forever having to care about one company again in my life. Like, it's so hard and so chaotic and so interesting and so fun. Going from building, you know, running databases for, we had over a million apps when I left, to running databases for a single company just seems like, it seems like a solved problem. And I know it's not completely fair, but it's really hard to go back to wanting to care about one company. Hmm. Now, what were the observability challenges in building a backend as a service? Oh, man. <laughs> I love that question. It's so simple, and yet it, it describes like four years of my life. Take whatever observability problems you have as a single company. You know, what is my latency like? What is my throughput like? How are things changing? What features are people responding to? And then, you know, multiply that. So, so here's an example of, and I, and I will say that around the time that we got acquired by Facebook, I would say that we had built what was effectively an undebuggable system. And we were using, you know, best of class tooling in terms of open source. You know, we we have a couple of engineers who care passionately about that sort of thing. So, you know, we were, you know, using auto scaling groups. It would scale up, scale it down, and it would like immediately populate all of the all the graphs, all the dashboards, all of the service level views, and yet it was all but impossible to track down simple questions like, you know, a user would write in and be like, parse is down. I'd be like is most definitely not down. You know, I have this wall full of dashboards that shows me exactly how not down <laughs> Parse is, but they don't care about that, right? I'm actually losing credibility every moment that I tell them that what they're seeing or experiencing is not true. And maybe 
let's be perfectly honest, almost half the time what they're seeing isn't true. Like maybe they forgot to turn on their Wi-Fi. Maybe they made a, you know, they, they updated their SDK and they're, you know, black holing some error that is telling them that they're not including the right key, you know? But if I'm just telling them you're wrong, that's not good enough. If I tell them your requests are not hitting our edge, that's more hmm. credible, hmm. but harder, right? And that's the easiest, the easiest category of problem is saying, hmm. I don't see your requests. If they are hitting us and they think that we're down, then why? Examples of answers might be they have some subtle bug either on our side or, you know, in the SDK or in what they're sending. Maybe they're sending an empty blob where they thought that they were sending a full blob. They'll just blame that on parse. Maybe, you know, especially when we were doing our rewrite from Ruby to Go, maybe they had hard-coded some expectation, like the type of this, this thing that returns is supposed to be null. In Ruby, they just you know, assume a lot of things. In Go, you make everything explicit. So maybe we're returning a zero, and that crashes their app. You know, Maybe their query was doing a full table scan, something that they were doing when a user logged in, and they went from 1,000 objects in the collection to 1,001, and suddenly everything's timing out. And they're still, like, all these things are going to be like parses down. The big challenge for us was to make every single one of those an infinite array of possibilities, something that we could answer, like, while conversing with them. Hmm. The challenge to me seems like that you have to build a backend as a service that is flexible enough to be powerful for a variety of highly technical users but also prevents these users from shooting themselves in the oh my foot. God. And, and this yeah. is a difficult line to balance. It so is. And we started out, I don't think that we ever got less, we never got more flexible in what we were willing to accept. And this hmm. kind of makes sense, right? When you're starting out as a platform and your only goal in life is to please get users, you know, you're going to offer them things that they ask for, like regular expressions in their database. <laughs> colossal mistake. We spent years trying to roll that back. We removed it from the docs. We stopped, you know, publicizing it. We started telling people not to do it. We severely rate limited it. But like, especially with mobile apps, you can't just stop supporting it because they might not have published an update to the app store in one or two years and still be successful. You know, there are so many baked in assumptions that you can never stop supporting. So we would like softly deprecate it. But yeah, you know, the reason this is hard is because Every one of your users will have a different calculus for what they care about and what they're willing to accept, right? Hmm. They want all these features, but they don't see the cost of them on the backend side because they're not exposed to the pain. So they just want them because everything feels costless. And hmm. Parse went out there and was pretty aggressive about, you don't have to know anything about your backend, which was great from a marketing standpoint and just fundamentally untrue from a technical standpoint. I could always tell the difference in software engineers who had any concept of how backends worked or not, <laughs> just based on what they would write. Hmm. My sense is that, well, I get this from watching some of your talks, so maybe this was a more extreme version of your views, but my sense is that you have some skepticism of platform as a service, or at least how platform as a service is viewed by some developers or how it's sold by some vendors. Where does your skepticism with platform as a service lie and yeah, I don't know. Yeah, help, help me understand I, the, the measure of that. your skepticism. And I'm mentally rewinding to some of my talks you may have seen where, <laughs> you know, I The serverless, have, serverless comp. Oh, well, that was a special creature. I am deeply in love with platforms and services. Honestly, I love the category of problems. I love the engineers who are, who are blazing these trails. I do. I have at times felt some frustration with the mismatch and how they're sold and the realities of life. Like the fact is that like the speed of light is what it is. You're not going to change the fact that a full table scan is bad and doing 10 of them is worse, you know? And like surfacing that information to engineers so that they can make good choices is really hard. You know, you're assuming a level of technical literacy that may or may not exist. You are pitching it to a level that they may or may not be at. The more knobs you're giving them, the more... It's not as easy as it might seem. Like, I mean, for example, think about the AWS mobile SDK. It was always, quote unquote, better than Parse was. It was all way more fully featured. It was more powerful. It gave you more, as you say, like rope to hang yourself with. 
nobody loved it, you know, because it wasn't opinionated. It didn't have this opinionated view of the world that this is how it works. This is how you can use your intuition, you know. And, and at parse, the stance that we aggressively took was you don't have to know anything. And I definitely had my frustrations with that, even while I have to admit that that's why people found it lovely and delightful to use. I think it's this important layer of abstraction that is hard to discuss in a scientific way. It's almost as important, like I think the platform is a service layer as it expands and as it changes in its definition. It's almost as important as something like object-oriented programming, where it is this layer of abstraction that helps you so much, but we don't quite have the vocabulary to talk about it in the right way yet, and there's a lot, it's... I mean, it is, you know, when we talk about skepticism, your skepticism, I think maybe the, you're probably more skeptical of the word serverless than the word platform as a service. But these two things are sort of different poles of a gradient where you're essentially leveraging lower level across the network abstractions and you get to build on top of them serverless is a little more raw, at least if we're talking about the Lambda area of things. And I think this would probably fall under your purview of the less opinionated sort of things. But then you you have these more opinionated and perhaps more beloved things like Heroku or Parse. I know Par- Parse was very dearly yeah. loved. Mm-hmm. Firebase, things like Twilio. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Of looking at the world that is kind of like object-oriented programming, but we don't quite have the vocabulary yet. I think that's really astute. I do. And and I think you can follow that that analogy a long way. I'd, I'd love to hear you speak a little bit more about that. Hmm. Well, I don't have a fully formed belief system on it, but, I mean, you're the one being interviewed. So let's <laughs> talk a little, let's, let's talk okay, a little bit more. Fair. So for people who do go all in on platform-as-a-service approaches mm-hmm. for deploying their app, what general pieces of advice do you have for managing those apps? Yeah, I mean, the thing that I kept repeating at ServerlessConf and that I'll continue to repeat today is that, you know, outsourcing, doing the work, never means you can outsource caring about it or needing to understand it or needing to think about it. You kind of have to just think about them like, you know, your family members. You have to take them as who they are where they're at and and don't try and change them you know or you can try and change them if you want but don't get invested in the idea that they will change you know you deal with yourself you take care of yourself and your users without expecting or relying on them doing anything you know and that's kind of liberating in a way just like you know hear this in therapy you know when you go to talk about your family they're like you know you have to take them for where they're at and, like, you take care of yourself, you know? I think that's a really healthy way of dealing with the world in general, and it's certainly applicable here. Nobody is perfect. No system or platform is perfect. Anyone says, who says anything else is trying to sell something. And the only way that you can truly know what to expect of a vendor or of a service is, firsthand, you try it, you see how it goes. Secondhand, you talk to people you trust who have tried it, you know? any metrics that any vendor ever publishes are just going to be bullshit. So I think that having that sort of like realist view of the universe and of your expectations is is liberating. It lets you design for a world where everything fails and you think about how to take care of your users. Hmm. You know? Going down that track further and talking more about serverless or the Lambda sort of things, what are the expectations that we should have for serverless because yeah. I talked to some some people and they think of it as a substrate that we will build higher level frameworks on. Like if you talk to Austin Collins, who's building the serverless framework, yeah. that seems to be his perspective is, okay, we'll build things like auth and statefulness on top of Lambda. Mm-hmm. Other people I've talked to say, really, the value of serverless is just thinking about areas of your code base that you can form fit to serverless and the serverlessness will manage the auto-scaling of those parts of your code. 
So there seems to be different perspectives with how this might shake out or what yeah. might be useful about serverless. What do you think are the expectations we should have? I mean, since you are on the skeptical side, what do you yeah. think are the are the expectations today and what might they evolve yeah. into? So skeptical, but also remember I said in love with it. Like this is a very much love hate. You know, I care so mm-hmm. much about it. Yeah. That I get cranky when I see people like doing things that I think will undermine the model. Because I, I am fundamentally a believer, and that's, you know, the, that love and hate, like, they definitely coexist. I'm more of the first camp, with the expectation that these first few frameworks are going to be terrible, and everyone's going to be really angry at them. We need ways of, like, abstractly talking, you know. But, but let's be clear, like, the serverless model is not for every service, and it is not for every workload, and it is not for everything. I think that it maps really, really well to certain types of workloads and not at all to others. Like, let's talk about, we're talking about something that has to be very loosely coupled, you know? You have to expect that any one of your vendors can go away and you can be mostly okay. I think that this is a great model for, for example, a company like Facebook could be, you know, in the future be very large and use this for batch processing. You know, it's on-demand compute. Background jobs, great for this. You know, data warehousing, analytics, that sort of thing. Anything that is, you know, where the, the surface is, you know, close to the user and they're relying on it, you know, right away, immediately. You don't want to distribute that across too many, too many vectors for, you know, outages. And, you know what I'm saying? Your web app, the thing that your users are interacting with, the fabric of it directly, can only be one thing. You know, the components of it can roll off and be less can be loosely coupled. I feel like I'm going down a hole. Let's rewind a little bit. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to compress like, oh my God, so many rants into, into brief overviews. Maybe pick <laughs> out one thing that you would like me to talk about and we can, <laughs> we can like well, roll up a little bit. Well, okay. So, so the vision that I see for serverless, I actually am a little more on the Austin Collins mm-hmm. side of things where yes. I think that, so if you look at serverless from a very fundamental perspective, it is just taking the little bits of computing that is dispersed throughout the AWS data centers and mm-hmm. aggregating them and saying, okay, let's use this. And so you can sell them at a much lower yes. cost. And I was saying, I also am on the Austin Cullen side. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. And I think much like with EC2, we've got two things. So first of all, like EC2, Early on, there were more outages. There were more bugs. It was very legitimate for people to yes. be a little bit paranoid about yeah. putting going whole hog into AWS. But now we're at a point where it's more secure to be on AWS yes. in in most Definitely. cases. It's you know, and you can rely on AWS and arguably rely on AWS more than you could rely Not on, on absolutely one hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely one hundred percent. And my sense is that there is just this inevitability that eventually it will be figured out how to make this work for serverless, even though right now we have this amorphous blob of unreliable compute that serverless provides to mm-hmm. you. We'll get there eventually. So to get to a question, I guess, I don't even know if I have mm. a question. I do not think that serverless, quote unquote, is inevitable in that sense for everything. I think it is for some things. So the stuff that you care about the most, your fundamental business logic, you know, whatever it is that's different about you, that's compelling about you that nobody else is doing, like you're going to have to be very involved in that. You're not going to be able to outsource that. You're going to be able to outsource components. So for example, if you're building an app, you know, that does, you know, oh God, what's something that an app would do? So for us, what Upload we're building, an image. Yeah. Well, okay. But that's, that's kind of commoditizable. For us, let's take us as an example. We're building, you know, a platform for people to do observability, you know, to understand what their application mm. is doing. There are aspects of this that we have to intensely understand and control. And what that is, like, it turns out for us, that includes a storage engine. Now, believe me, we did not want to build our own storage engine. I've spent my career telling people not to build their own storage engines. <laughs> That's true 99.99% of the time. But we understand what we're doing as radically new in ways that require us to build a new storage engine. I think that at that level, what I'm saying is the things that make up whatever you're building are going to be unique. And whatever is different about you, you're going to have to build. For most people, that is not hardware management. For most people, that is not 
you know, that is not cues. You know, you use cues to build the thing that you're building that's new and different in the world. For some people, the people who are building cues as a service, that is their bread and butter. You know, for people who are building an image management uploading thing at this point in time, it would have to be pretty different in ways. Like, how is it different? Is it super fast, super cheap? Does it have, you know, cute little icons that you can enrich it with? You know, whatever you're doing there that is different, you have to own, you know? And so I think that for serverless stuff, we're going to see increased shedding. You know, increasingly people think ruthlessly about what is different about me, what is in my sphere of extreme competency or creativity. And those are the things that you will not shed. Everything that is, you will. Now, I want to get to a discussion of Honeycomb, which is the company that you're working on now. I want to talk a little bit about your experiences at Facebook before we get there. And I don't know if you can talk about this much, but can you discuss what happened with Parse and why you had to shut it down? Absolutely. (laughs) We didn't have to. They wanted to. And I understand that from a cold-blooded business perspective. It continued to be very successful, kind of despite their best efforts. I think that the thing that I would say that I've learned from this is strategic alignment matters. You know, if you're being acquired and you're not being acquired, your strategic alignment matters. It is everything. A C-level sponsorship also matters, which we never had. And in fact, many execs were surprised when we were acquired, which is not a great sign. C-level sponsorship is really important, but like strategic alignment, like look at the varying examples of Instagram versus Parse. Instagram and Facebook, so much synergy, (laughs) right? They're both big social apps that want to serve lots of photos and and like make people more open and connected. Their platforms aligned, their missions aligned. They were able to just like really, like not to say it wasn't hard, but they aligned. And with Parse, you know, it was always more of a, well, let's see if we can make developers love us by, you know, a thing that developers love. There were some, you know, ideas of us helping Facebook platform, but they really didn't want to listen to the things that we had to say about what developers liked and didn't like. So you can't really have an impact if they don't want to listen. So we just weren't aligned. We were not aligned mm-hmm. at all. And they kind of kept us on as a you know, cost, <laughs> you know, a thing that cost a lot of money, but it was a cool project and lots of people loved it. So they kept it on for a couple of years and like shunted it around from department to department. And we tried a few things to get there to be over that. But like Facebook basically decided to stop sponsoring other mobile apps, you know, other than the Facebook app. And there came a point in time where it was just like, why does this thing exist? Yeah. Which was too bad because growth continued to be phenomenal, even though there was never really any real, real investment in it, which tells me that there is an appetite for this sort of thing, a huge appetite. We were early. We did well. We maybe didn't focus on getting revenue. I was always pretty irritated that we stopped caring about revenue after we got to Facebook because, you know, I would say, I don't want to be a gift with purchase. <laughs> you know, I want, I mean, we're a limited capitalist society and worth to people is demonstrated by if they're be willing to pay for it. And people were very willing to pay for Parse, like increasingly so. But we didn't really work to make it revenue neutral. And that, I'm sure, didn't help. It was pretty expensive by the end, which is why, you know, with Honeycomb, we are from the very start. We're focusing on pricing as one of the most important things. And it's hard. It's really hard to price these things. Yeah, I mean, I spend a lot of time thinking about pricing of podcast ads. I know pricing is mm. is, just, is a complex thing, but as far as parse, I think you know the, the obvious analogy. I'm sure you've thought about is Salesforce acquiring Heroku, oh and God, yes. in that case, the patient did not reject the organ transplant despite it being somewhat unaligned with mm-hmm. the rest of the body. Is there something different? I mean, but Facebook, I think of as more of a the management structure of Facebook is a little, I, I don't understand it as well as the Salesforce model mm-hmm. is represented in my head. But I think of a sales, I think of Mark Benioff, you know, his, his, you know, his legacy of working at Oracle. He's mm-hmm. probably somebody that is more focused on the revenue and the the cost structures of the individual business units rather than mm-hmm. the synergies and the overall cost structure of the bigger entity that I think of Facebook, the Facebook mental model, 
do you think it's a failing of Facebook that Facebook was not able to? Well, yeah, well, I, don't I think know. they should never have acquired us, and yeah. I don't think we should have consented to being acquired by them. Just like, a culture problem. Hmm? It's just a culture problem. It's that Facebook is a giant web app. That's all they care about. You know, it may seem simplistic or reductive to put it in those terms, but the only things that succeed at Facebook are the things that you know wrap into this this web app. You know, the only reason that they're investing in that. VR goggles thing, Oculus, <laughs> is because they think that's the future for Facebook. You know, the reason Instagram succeeded is because they think it's successful for Facebook. And Parse was successful at Facebook for so long as they thought that the mobile app ecosystem was important for Facebook, you know? And that wasn't long after we got there, honestly. And, you know, it's possible that if, you know, Parse had been comprised of slightly different individuals, we may have been able to make the argument that somehow we could, I don't know, it's, it's easy to engage in hypotheticals. We had a lot of really strong-willed, strong-minded people, a lot of whom quickly quit parse and went back to Google. <laughs> you know, I really do think that there are two types of big company people in the Valley, and there's Facebook-type people, and there's Google-type people, and they don't get along. And, you know, there was some impedance mismatch there, for sure. We didn't really, like, we loved our mission of helping app developers. And Facebook doesn't really want to help app developers because they want eyes to be on Facebook, you know? For a time that wasn't true, you know, for a time they were like, we can be a hub for blah, blah, blah. But I think you can see from the investment and caring about, I'm going to say things that are going to get me in trouble, so I'll probably just like fade off there. (laughs) Okay, well, to fade you back on, so the Facebook versus Google employees in in the Valley, I find that interesting contrast. I worked at Amazon in Seattle, Mm -hmm. which maybe is a third example, but Perhaps, I really wish wait, Amazon had acquired us, honestly. Go on. Yeah, speak, that would be an interesting hypothetical to run. But when I think of at least the Amazon innovation model, because I understand that just from my extremely limited time there, eight months, if somebody stands up their own little company thing within Amazon, you can get buy-in from the management. Like, okay, yeah. do that thing and run with it and stand it up. And if it starts to gain some traction, my sense is that Amazon will look for a way to... Like, yeah, maybe there's some yeah. coincidental synergies, or maybe you have internal competition, and yeah. maybe one of those things works out. That, to me, sounds like more of a Google decentralized yeah. innovation approach yes. that perhaps yes. does not exist at Amazon or at, at Facebook. Does not yeah. exist at Facebook. This is why I think that both Google or Amazon parts would have been wildly successful at you know because both of them are used to nurturing or leaving alone. Just like Salesforce mostly left Heroku alone for a while, right? You know, and let them kind of. You know, it's a, it's a sad but true fact of life that people, you know, the original Heroku team, by and large, would not be happy at the Salesforce Heroku and vice versa, which is just a normal, you know, maturation of the company thing that goes on. And I kind of need needed to give it time to grow up and to, like, do the, the sorting that it inevitably goes through. I think that all three of those companies are just very different from the Facebook model. You know, they're, they're looking for other ways of making money and other ways of innovating and other ways of being in front, you know. And they're open to nurturing bubbles, you know, for lack of a better word, little internal bubbles of creativity mm-hmm. and, and enthusiasm. Whereas, you know, with Parse at Facebook, it was, they were jokingly angry at me for, you know, so many people wanted to work at Parse. That that's almost one of the things that they were most irritated by. Because they didn't want that detracting from, you know, the, the, the beating heart lifeblood of the company, which is the Facebook web app. Wow. Interesting. Okay, well, getting away from the Parse experience, so at some point you moved to solving production issues, I guess? You know, kind of maybe when Parse was shut down, you moved into more of an operations role. Is that accurate? No, God, no. I, oh, okay. I, I, left, <laughs> I left Facebook basically a year ago, August. Wait, two August. <laughs> but I didn't leave leave for, I took about six months to figure out if I was going to come back and join the MySQL team or something else. So you went on sabbatical. Yeah, basically. I had a bunch of conferences to speak at and stuff, so I kind of took the fall off, just kind of wandering the world and thinking about the future. They announced that they were shutting down Parse five or six months after I left Parse. Oh, I see. Yeah. So I read Chaos Monkeys. I don't know if you read it, but it's a book about 
a guy who gets his company acquired by Facebook and then he leaves Facebook no, eventually. I've, I've, it's been one of those things I've been looking at and it's just been like a little too painful, oh. close to home. To, I haven't even read it. Is it good? Oh, wow. It is unbelievably good. I have been trying to get the author on this show, but he's done a bunch of good podcasts if you want a free sample of his thinking and his philosophies. But, you know, he talks about this interest. I mean, he gets fired eventually from, from mm. Facebook, but he talks about like, there is a culture in Facebook that's really fun to be at, and it's really addictive. And it's when you leave Facebook, it sounds like it's it can be somewhat of a traumatic experience. I think that's leaving the case. It's, it's yeah, leaving Facebook. Oh, I, I think and it I'm is wondering for a lot of people. Was it for you? No. no. <laughs> okay. No. Why do you think that is? is? That a different difference in your personality? I don't know. There's something about being non-consensually acquired. I mean, it's. Ah. Uh. I mean, you know, I cared about Parse, like, massively, or I wouldn't have stayed. But I turned down Facebook years ago, literally 2008, 2009, because it was too big for me. You know, it was funny. When Vine got shut down, the tweets from the Vine founders, they were just like, never sell your company. You know, it's not that. It's just like, you know, it's you're entering into a relationship. I think it's really hard for employees. Like for founders, like at least you consented. It was your cost benefit analysis. Your as a founder, I know this hugely now, like very very intimately that, you know, the costs are always weighing on you and it's just a trade-off of this set of costs or that set of costs, you know. Mm-hmm. I totally understand why the founders sold to Facebook, but like for the rest of us hearing it was a shock and it was not what we signed up for, you know. Hmm. Well, I mean, let's just start with the easy thing of like 3 hours of commuting a day from the city. <laughs> I mean, let's just start there and then go to all the other bullshit around it. You know, it's just, it was not, you know, it was a labor of love and we lost a lot of people right after we joined because of that, because it wasn't what they signed up for. Well, if I recall around that time, gosh, we're getting right back into it, but around that time, it was funny because Facebook was kind of struggling to figure out what it was. I think this was before the mobile switch and all that added revenue from the mobile movement. And it was like, maybe we're a platform company like AWS, Mm -hmm. sort of. Mm -hmm. Maybe we're like a social fabric for apps or something. Yeah, I know. In that world, it could have been amazing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Let's get into operations more generally. It is certainly fun to talk about gossip and company culture and whatnot, but mm-hmm. there are plenty of other podcasts that do that better than I can. And I don't usually talk about this. I'm, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't talk about this publicly for obvious reasons, but yeah. I know you don't. First time for everything. Totally shifting the conversation. We are in this time when operations are changing, observability is changing, the role of engineers are changing. You suggest that even though we have all these nice platforms that theoretically should reduce our need for operations people, we actually need, (laughs) yes, they should. We actually need operations expertise more than ever. Why is that? Because operations is just, it's how you run your stuff, you know? It's no more complicated than that. We can argue about the kind of operations that we need, and that's changing a lot. But, like, I don't think of operations as being, like, and, and I'm totally privileged by the amazing people that I've gotten to work with. I never, I know there's, like, a stigma attached to operations in a lot of places, and I think that's stupid. Because, you know, when you want to make something awesomer and better, you don't usually start by just, like, talking shit about it. You know? You value it. You value it, and you talk about what you want to see and how you want to improve. You don't just start going, we're not going to have any of this. Like, that's just... <laughs> Come on. I think that the right way to think about operations in the future is, you know, it's like a social contract. Everyone participates in it from the CEO down to support. Every engineer is intimately involved in making it a high quality thing. And, you know, it's it's like saying that maintenance is not part of the job of anyone who works at a car company. You know, everyone is should be involved in thinking about safety, security maintenance, longevity, understanding what you've built. I mean, it should be embedded into your culture and into your product at every level, you know? Mm. Obviously, a car company shouldn't be aiming to have cars need to go to the shop once a month. (laughs) That shouldn't just respond to any key that opens it. Uh, This is just like, it should be part of your culture, part of your fabric, and that that means not devaluing it. Mm. I think that certainly the level at which you should all be thinking about it and having to care about it. It's changing. You know, again, hardware, not our job anymore. 
awesome. That frees up our brain cycles to think about other things. And I think that increasingly operations is the job of software engineers. And you have quote unquote operations engineers as specialists to help you figure it out. And like, I love the model of where, you know, you have, and I've seen this a few times lately, it makes me so excited. 100 people in engineering, you know, 70, 80 software engineers, maybe three, four, five ops engineers, three, four, you know, DB engineers, three, you know, whatever, QA. But like those people aren't on call. <laughs> They're the specialists who help you figure out, you know, so they may go around to a new team every couple months, do some rotations with you, help you bring your, you know, your observability, your instrumentation up to snuff, help standardize it across the company, you know, and then they bring this like, you know, when you have an ops person who's been, you know, doing security rounds and doing, you know, observability rounds, then they can also help standardize and bring like a kind of fluidity to every other team in the company, you know, but it's almost like embedded in consultancy. I love this model. I think we're going to see more of it. Hmm. Monitoring has become its own application stack. Mm -hmm. A company is typically using a collection of monitoring tools. It's no, Mm -hmm. like I remember one company I went to four or five years ago was, it was just like Nagios and not much else. But today there's, you know, you've got like five to 10 monitoring tools Maybe you're paying a subscription for some of them. Maybe you're on freemium for some of them. What are the requirements for a monitoring stack today? Yeah, that question has gotten harder and more complicated, right? As you've gotten so many other, so many alternatives and options, so many different ways of looking. You know, I always think of the the metaphor of the elephant, right? Where everyone's touching a different piece of the elephant and thinks of it as being a radically different beast. But the elephant is just, how do you understand your systems? How do you ask questions of your systems? And how do you decide what actions to take to keep quality and performance and, and all of these things within acceptable parameters? So the answer to the question is going to depend on what your requirements are. So like a web, a web company is going to have super different requirements from like a healthcare company where everything exists behind closed doors. It's kind of, they're doing batch processing. They don't even have an API that's exposed to the world necessarily. So it's much more custom. But I think that there are, are three critical components. And you can see them reflected in kind of the three pillars today, which are like the Datadog, the Splunk, and the New Relic, right? So you've got, you've got metrics and monitoring, you've got events, and you've got APM, Application Performance Management. And here's where I'll plug, where I'll plug Honeycomb a little bit and, and say this is how we're thinking about the world, that we span all three. And I think that this is important for a few reasons, but I'll, I'll talk about the three first. The Datadog stuff is like your very traditional metrics and monitoring. It's, it's like what we think of when we see monitoring, you know? It's like, it's very much drawing on traditions of Nagios and RRD, right? The Robin database thing where you have rollups and a time interval. You don't have events. There are like ticks and counters. StatsD fits into this really well, but you've got dashboards and they're fixed and you don't really interact with them. You scroll and you create dashboards to try and explain. I always joke about how you have always have dashboards to explain the last outage. And it proactively notifies you when one of your KPIs or your you know, metrics has fallen out of bounds. This is a very reactive model. It's the model that most ops people are used to working in, and I think it's a little unfortunate. You're not used to asking questions of your system, you're used to predicting how the system is going to break and watching for that to happen, right? I'm a little bit down on it, but but it's mostly me being contrary because there's a huge amount of value there. Sure. But I think that it's reached a kind of reached a point of diminishing returns for sure. Signal effects is very much in that category. I, I think that those two are the the last and best versions of RD that we're ever going to see in the world. <laughs> then you've got the APM stuff, which is kind of new, right? The idea that software engineers should have to think and care about how their stuff is performing. Most of this traditionally took place offline. You know, you'd use GDB or Purify or something to see if you had memory leaks or if your performance had degraded with your unit tests. And in the last few years, this shocking new like, idea has come up that software engineers should have both power, control, and some perhaps responsibility over, over how their stuff runs in production. And I think this is awesome. New Relic is, is obviously the leader, I think they really were smart to get out in front with a frictionless, you do a gem install and you've got your stuff, right? Mm. It pre-populates, it pre-assembles a bunch of really useful graphs. 
the trade-off there is, again, you kind of run into a wall. Like if you want to deviate from the golden path, you kind of can't, you know. And and this was this was the right first thing to do because this is the easiest. There are very few barriers to entry. It gives you a lot right off the bat. You can solve a lot of low-hanging fruit immediately. You're hooked. That's awesome. And I think that what you're going to see over the next couple of years, you're already starting to see it, is people get frustrated with that with that wall that they hit that they can't ask new questions. And the third one is kind of this catch-all, you know, literally catch-all category of log aggregation. And this is messy and far-flung, as you would imagine, from something that's dealing with all of these strings. You know, Splunk is the leader, but you've got App Dynamics and SumoLogic and all these small and large companies that do nothing but bring together your logs and try and help yeah. you tease some signal out of it. Yeah, it's a tough problem. It is. We, it's we, really we, tough. We, we had... Oh, what was his name? The CTO of Sumo Logic on. We had an entire show about how that system works, and it's like a big problem. So you're talking about these disparate solutions that cover monitoring, and you describe Honeycomb as what you do when your monitoring ends. Yeah. I've also heard I've also heard you describe it as a tool that is useful, even for very ex- well, or maybe for very experienced engineering organizations who have automated, they've automated everything that they can. They're abiding by the best practices, but Honeycomb solves something else. It does something additive. What is it doing that is additive on top of these companies that are well-heeled, they are intelligently automated? What is it adding to these companies? Honeycomb lets you ask new questions and ask them really fast and interactively and iterate on them. And About your whole system. About your entire system from the IoT mobile devices through the code that you've written yourself, through databases and all of the other systems that you are, vendor software that, that you're using to back your systems. And this is unique. You have to do a little bit of work to get your information in, but we speak JSON, Lingua Franca. But there's, there's a lot of value here. And I would start with... You know, that feeling of hitting a wall, that feeling of if you couldn't anticipate it, you can't monitor for it. Feeling of, you know, what do I choose, what to index on? I can't predict what's going to break. You know, those are the questions that we answer. And Hmm. I think that we were really fortunate to have been at Parse when we were. You know, we kind of got to see into the future a little bit. And Hmm. being at Facebook, you know, that confluence of things was so powerful because, you know, when I left... I wasn't planning to start a company and I hate monitoring. It's like God's cruel joke that I'm doing this, but it didn't exist. (laughs) I just can't even imagine living without it. And I believe that the world is hurtling towards feeling the same way. Hmm. At the core of what we do is we incentivize you to gather as much. If you think of the width of data, you know, we incentivize you to capture every scrap, you know, and you can sample, you know, vertically if you need to for costs or whatever, but we take events, arbitrarily wide events and key value pairs, and we aggregate on all of them immediately. So there's no indexes. Indexes, again, are another way of predicting what's going to break, predicting what you're going to want to be able to search on efficiently. Because if you're not indexing it, you know, in the log aggregators, you're just doing a distributed graph anyway. We index on, we don't even index, we aggregate on everything. So you can search on key value pairs as soon as they enter your system. And this allows you to do exploratory debugging like, you know, before I mentioned some of the questions that Parse would have, you know, where some answers that you might discover would be like, app writes in, they say they're down, and you start going, okay, I'm going to slice and dice by their app ID. Okay, now I slice and dice by endpoint. Which endpoints are slow? Okay, it seems to be the endpoints that are, you know, these half dozen, which are the right endpoints. Okay, so writes are slow for this application. Which endpoints are they or which backends are they going to? Well, it seems to be going to MySQL. Half of those are slow. And the writes that go to MongoDB are slow, but the reads are not. Well, let's take MongoDB first. Are any other apps slow? No, it seems to be just this one. What's the cardinality of that data set? Okay, so the Mongo writes appear to be slow because... Okay, other apps on that shard are slow too when they're doing writes, but maybe they aren't surfacing or they haven't been complained about yet. Okay, so it seems like the write lock percentage on that MongoDB primary spiked about five minutes ago when this other app committed an update that started saturating the write lock on this particular database and it's holding this 
you know, this lock, so there's contention, you know. So that's one example. And another example would be an app says that some of their users are saying it's down, and it turns out to be only their users who are coming from France who are using iPhone of this version, who are using iOS, you know, mm. whatever, who are running this version of their application, who are going through this particular router, who are, you know, it's just like, yeah. I feel like in a mature complex system, there are no easy problems because you've automated right. them away. They're solving themselves. They're being remediated there are only hard new questions and there is mm. nothing out there that helps you ask new questions mm. you can imagine like the old style of getting paged as you look at your phone you're like oh i know what that is i'll go remediate it oh i know what this is in the <laughs> right. new world every time you get paged it should be new and baffling and kind of terrifying right. the hard thing about hard things is nobody's done them before you don't know how to do it and what we do really, really well is we don't lock you into trying to predict it. We help you answer arbitrarily hard questions really fast. You're describing this the system. Honeycomb is to your systems like an IDE is oh to my your God. code. I've used that metaphor before. Yes, it's yeah. exactly like yeah. that. Well, yeah, it's on your website, I think. Oh. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. It, well, but it makes I mean it makes complete sense. So you know you've got because you need an IDE as as an assistant to wrangle these complex systems, or it helps you a lot yeah, in wrangling these complex systems. Anymore. You can't. You shouldn't be expected to. You know, we've been relying on senior engineers to do this, to hold the systems in their head. And I know because I've been the senior engineer, you know? Yeah. I was on my honeymoon. I'm on the beach. I don't have my computer. And they're calling me. They're like, we're so sorry, but Parse has been down for an hour and we can't figure it out. Uh -huh. You know, oh, and I'm just like, I just start asking questions and I debug by smell more than anything else. I just sense it. And I sense it because I built it because I know it, you know, and this feels yeah. really good. It feels really good to be that superhero engineer, but it doesn't scale. And it it's increasing not. the abilities of even the most senior engineers. Facebook still relies on these senior engineers who have been around for 10 years who can smell this stuff, you know, doesn't yeah. scale. It's hard to bring new people in. We can't debug by intuition. You know, we have to bring it into the realm of data. Yeah, you don't want the situation where every time you've got some unheard of bug, the senior engineer has to open up eight oh, terminal oh. windows and flip between them. and Or being called back from vacation. or The heroics right. era needs to end, yeah. Yeah, the heroics era and the era of like, oh, you know, you're piping eight Unix commands and like, what are those eight Unix commands? Know, and, he's, right? and he's like, I, don't, don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need to know. No. So, so, but the other component of this that I'll talk about before we move along is, you know, those senior engineers have so much value to add. It just has to stop being them, you know, which is why the first thing that we're, people always ask us, oh, are you doing predictive analytics? Are you doing, you know, anomaly <laughs> detection and all this stuff? And I'm like, I internally roll my eyes because everyone who claims that they're doing it is kind of smoking crack. Sure, we can do it as much as they're doing, but I don't think that's what's powerful here. I think what's powerful at this point is your team. Like, if I told you you could have your teammates' idea of what you should be looking at, or what my computer's idea of what you should be looking at, which would you choose? You know, I mean, you'd be dumb not to choose what your teammate thinks you should be looking at. So what we're doing is we store the history, you know, of what you've been searching for, and we are encouraging you to, you know, add comments and kind of explain back to yourself what you're seeing because because debugging is a, is a social activity. Like it just is. Even if it's just you and your past self and your future self, right? You have to add little cookie crumbs for yourself, you know, to explain what you were looking at yesterday because you're going to forget today. You have to add little nudges for your future self. And on a team, you really want to be interacting around your data. You want to, I think of this in terms of a lot of a, like on-call handover, you know, we have historically spent a lot of time post-morteming and, you know, doing a handoff and stuff when actually just what I want to be able to see is, oh, I have a problem with Cassandra. Didn't Christine have a problem with Cassandra last week? And I want to just go back and look at what she did and the notes she hmm. left for herself that explain what was happening. And then I'll pull that into my own, you know, and I'll tweak it. The goal here is to kind of not start at zero when you're debugging, but start by jumping to like 85 or 90 or 95% of the way to the solution. And by building up this knowledge base of the problems that you guys have seen, it's like you're, it's like a heat map. It's, it's kind of like an, an emergent production run book, you know, where you're not relying on yourselves to write down what's happened, but you see what each of you actually ran when you were trying to explain stuff. And you curate for each other, you can curate like outage or like 
postmortem like reports, you know, they're just like, it's almost like a playlist of what each of you, again, like on the elephant, what each of you was seeing that made up this complex event. You know, the other thing about outages in, in the modern world is that they're never one thing. They're not even two things. You know, it's usually this like black swan event of one, two, three, four, five things all hit at once, which is why they're so hard to reconstruct, you know, and so hard to test for. And that's what we do so well. And it really requires drawing on all of the different silos of deep knowledge across your entire organization. You know, at Paris, often it would be like a combination of what happened on the SDK when they rolled a new SDK in the API team and the backend team and the database. Like we all <laughs> had to be there to figure out what was going wrong. Yeah. So I think it's a great time to build this tool because it's we're getting better at building these rich user interfaces. The technology is getting better for building them. And I can imagine this sort of developer tool that, I mean, I haven't used Honeycomb. I've taken a look at it. I've seen what people have to say, but it sounds like this very rich interface where there's a lot of surface area that you cover already. The onboarding process is not too tough, and it's there's plenty of room for you to expand, I'm sure. I would love to talk more about Honeycomb, but I know we're we're running up against yeah. time, and I, I kind of want to just, as we begin to close off, ask you a question that's been a theme in some recent episodes is the question of how you build a developer tools business, because you were able, mm -hmm. kind of were able to, I mean, you did this at Parse, you were, except you, the, the business sort of sold before it was, I don't know if you were profitable when you sold, but... No, God, no. Yeah, no, okay, no, not, not profitable. But anyway... The developer tools business is interesting, and you know, so do you build an open source? Do you not build an open source? What are the just to close off? What are the lessons that you have learned about yeah. building developer tools businesses successfully? Oh my god, yeah, you know, in thirty seconds or less, how do you build a business? <laughs> <laughs> I think that you know, for us, you know, the engineering is the easy part. It's just like we're fortunate to have amazing engineers here, but. Everything else is really hard, which is why I spend all my time thinking about it. You know, the pricing from day one, we were agonizing about pricing and it's not getting easier. Believe me, it's getting harder. But like we, it's, it's also very, I'll just say, especially with recent electoral events, the world is always unpredictable and has become even more so. I'm really cynical about the Valley promises that you shouldn't need to think about revenue, that it will come after the users do. I know from running infrastructure services that they are very costly. I hope the world is willing to pay for them. I see evidence that they are. The thing that happened with mail <laughs> 10, 15 years ago where Gmail appeared on the scene and we all suddenly went, huh, we're all spending core engineering cycles training spam filters and antivirus and running IMAP servers. Maybe we should not do that. <laughs> and we suddenly freed up engineers, right? I think that that's starting to happen across the industry. I think it's still really hard to surface to like bean pushers, bean keepers, bookkeepers, the massive underlying human costs, especially when some of these services are not super well baked and it still incurs human costs on your side, right? Gmail was not super reliable in the beginning. Parse was not super reliable in the beginning. And I imagine that it, there are times when it costs more engineering cycles than they saved you. But that, that trend is curving in the right direction really fast. And I would say that it's worth your time to start investing and in knowing how to do these serverless things well. It is a special skill. You're not just pushing the need to care about that off. You are changing and hopefully shrinking the amount of attention that it does take. So I think it's worth investing in that for everyone today. I think that for those of us on the, on the production side, remembering to to always bring the conversation back to value. What is the long-term value that we are bringing your business? I think that that argument is pretty unassailable at this point. And so we both have to think about ourselves in terms of sustainability, maybe growing a little bit slower, but growing more sustainably, and bring the conversation back to value. We are providing great value. We're doing it better than you can do it yourself. You're investing in partnering with us, and it's going to pay off. I think that that's the right approach, whether it's open source or not. I think generally a combination hybrid approach is good where I wouldn't want to run something on the client side that I couldn't see and change if I had to. I understand the needs and I have experienced the needs of a pure open source business model is rough. It's really rough. But like 
closed source on the server side and open source on the client side is what we're doing. And I think it's the best model that I've seen overall. Hmm. Charity Majors, thank you so much for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. This has been really awesome.